HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's July 12, 2016. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. Hey, it's happy July Good Beer Month. We've been working on that for a number of years. And we're very happy to have uh, author and brewer Derek Dallinger, who's got a new book coming out, The Fermented Man. We also know him as the brewer for Kent Falls Brewery from... uh, Connecticut, which we like a lot. Amber, Sarah, how are you? Nice to see you. So good to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you guys for ages. It's like summer, you know? I know. People are good. And Will, Will Stevens from BeerManus.com. Yeah, thanks for Welcome having me. On. Congratulations, man. You're a certified Cicero. See, I told you you'd do it. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we, not too long ago, we, the three of us, Ann, Will, and I traveled to uh, Pennsylvania, and we got to interview Bill Kovaleski at Victory the night before they announced it. They were merging with Southern Tier. So that was kind of a special journey. <laughs> I think it took us six hours round trip. Well, we got stuck in, there was a tree down, there, there were on trains, there was snow. Yeah, and then we had, but we had our beer and we had our ribs that we took to go from the beer dinner because we couldn't stay. And we, you know, all class. That's how we Good roll. Time. So yeah. we, we bonded and everything. But Derek, let's cut to the chase. So I know you're on uh, Ferment About It not too long ago. Um, let's let's talk about your book first because it's, it's pretty interesting. So what you lived on fermented food and drink only for a year? Yep, uh, nothing but fermented food for an entire year. Not the easiest diet, and uh, not a diet I did to uh, convince anyone else to follow it. Not going on to Oprah to 
to sell the all fermented food diet. It was, you know, a way of uh, kind of drawing people's attention to the variety of fermented foods available and, and illustrating the fact that uh, fermentation pretty much reaches through every type of food and drink you could think of. What, what were the main, in terms of foods, what were the main foods that you ate during that time? Well, I certainly ate a lot of uh, bread and cheese. Um we got a lot of calories from bread, cheese, beer, yogurt, and uh, of course, you know, you can ferment pretty much any vegetable, although vegetables don't have a lot of calories, so living off of sauerkraut is rather challenging. Um, cured meats, I, I mean, it's really interesting that just how, how much this, how much food uh, is encompassed within fermentation that people don't think of, like meat especially, people are kind of perplexed when I tell them that, you know, I could eat any fermented meat at all, and then you point out that pepperoni and salami and prosciutto and all these really fancy gourmet foods are are fermented so you know i I had a surprising amount of variety available to me which was of course the point take us from the beginning how did this start where did it come from where did the idea originate you know i i really uh, my mind just works in weird ways is pretty much where the idea came from um i was learning about fermentation really getting into fermentation i had been a home brewer for uh, a couple of years um and really getting into sour beer early on and getting obsessed with you know pretanomyces and wild yeast and and bacteria so i was familiar with uh, lactobacillus bacteria from brewing and from making sour beer and shopping really just at the natural food markets and and kind of looking at all these other, you know, local Hudson Valley made fermented foods and it, you know, it realized like, oh, wow, the same same species of bacteria or same genus of bacteria makes so many different foods, which I found kind of mind boggling. And that just kind of, uh, you know, that awareness accumulated until I realized there really is so much fermented food out there that you could probably live off of fermented food. And that idea just kind of popped into my head as like a, a wacky writer idea uh, sort of thing, like something I could make a joke about. Um, but I, I really was fascinated by that concept and by, uh, you know, the, the potential of fermentation and uh, you know, fermentation as this thing is finally being restored to our culture that we lost for decades. Um, how much was out there that we'd been eating for thousands of years that people kind of have forgotten so about. You, you never had like a raw vegetable or a, a piece the of The whole lettuce. year, yeah, no, no raw vegetables. I was going to say when you don't look so good, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. But you look great, man. Yeah, it's probably all the non-fermented You know, we kept walking in because we, we, I've never really, I've met you once or twice and we were like, we know he has a beard and every guy that came over here is, we called out this one guy, <laughs> Derek, 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 and his girlfriend started joking him, but I'm kind of excited to meet you. You know, it's, it's like when you read about someone that, remember there was a guy that lived for 40 days on beer alone. Right. right. That seemed, that seemed that more yeah. extreme. I, I think that would be harder. I mean, you know, the, the less variety you have access to, the more challenging a, a diet is, of course. And even, you know, even the limitations in what I could eat with the fermented diet were extremely challenging. And, you know, even with the variety of f- foods I could eat, which, you know, spanned every type of food that there is, it still takes this psychological toll on you when you're, when you're like, I've eaten cheese every day this week. I've eaten bread every day this week. And usually nothing elaborate. Like usually I would just eat things kind of as they were. So it takes this weird psych- psychological toll where you're like, I'm just eating cheese again. I'm just eating bread again. I'm just drinking beer and getting calories from beer again. So I, I can imagine more than a couple days on nothing but beer. Did you lose weight? I lost a few pounds, yeah, and and that certainly wasn't the goal of it. But uh, any any limited diet like that, you're you're probably going to lose a little weight. Um, but 
you know, I, I checked in with the doctor, made sure my, my you know, vitals were healthy, and uh, my blood pressure actually went down, and I did lose a few pounds, but actually felt surprisingly good throughout the year. And where do you live? Do you live in New York City? Because even now I feel like it's, you know, you go to the fresh bread section and you look at the ingredients, and it's not a fermented, long fermentation right. bread. I mean, it's hard to find. Where it's did you find all this so food? hard to find. Yeah, bread is, I mean, I, I, I kind of, the bread chapter in here is probably the most negative chapter in the book where I... I really kind of complain about the the state of American bread. It it hasn't uh, it hasn't been restored to what it was the way that say craft beer has restored the you know the the essence of beer and, and cheese and you know all these other gourmet foods. Bread I think is still lagging behind, and I think people maybe misidentify what happened, what went wrong with bread, and a lot, it's very multifaceted. Like to make it what I at least personally consider a really good loaf of bread is. Very complicated and involves, you know, not just an artisan making it by hand, but you know, uh, properly milled flour, whole wheat, and sourdough fermentation. Long fermentation, like, yeah. long, exactly. So a lot of bread gets one or two of those things right, but not all of them. Um, and I had lived in the city for a few years, but when I was doing this diet, um, I'd been up in the Hudson Valley for a few years. At that point, I kind of fled uh, Brooklyn to make more room for my home brewing exploits. So I was. Uh, in Beacon, New York, and there are you know some some artisanal food stores there. There's oh, there's a great cheese shop up there too. That in yeah, the Hudson Valley. The Hudson Valley is awesome and and really is uh, you know kind of on the forefront of uh, you know the agricultural and culinary world at least compared to a lot of the country. But even even there, it's certainly challenging, especially with things like bread. Where just you know there are bread makers, but they're not really making the types of bread that I was looking for. And it can't be a coincidence to the gluten, the crazy gluten allergies and the celiac and all of these things coming and gluten being demonized, but it's not exactly. gluten. It's right. and I think <laughs> the a lot of misshaping, right? Of the yeah. Gluten. What changed is, you know, we used to make bread a very different way and fermentation uh, breaks, tends to break down foods and makes, uh, makes them more digestible and, and easier for our bodies to process. And when we stopped, you know, fermenting bread for more than a couple hours, that's a huge change, and that that's a, a, you know has a huge effect on how our body is able to process that food. Do you feel the same way about when you brew? Do you feel like that you have to give your beers time? Well, it certainly helps. I mean, uh, I guess it depends what uh, what types of beer you're doing, and I, I have you know a lot of interest in uh, you know so-called clean beers, beers that are just fermented with ale yeast and only take two or three weeks to ferment. So I don't know that there's you know th- those are certainly not rushed or by any means um but you know if you, to make a comparison between bread um wild ales sour beers that age for a lot longer that age for you know months or years uh, are broken down quite a bit more and, and possibly easier to digest uh or process for our bodies and i actually did a little bit of research on that um during this and it, it's it's hard to it's hard to study the the human gut and uh, draw exacting um, conclusions about what's going on in there. It's a, a major field of research right now. There's a lot of study being done on our, you know, on our microbiome and our relationship with the microbes in our gut. Uh, so far, like, no hard conclusions, really. It's really hard to say what exactly happens when you introduce any one element into your gut. It's, it's such a complicated ecosystem. Any single change can have these myriad uh, ramifications. So there's uh, a lot of complexity there that still needs a lot of study. Will, have you ever had any, any experiments like this? I mean, you ever, like, go on a fast? I mean, I, I went on, like, a vision quest when I was 21 and only had, like, soup and bread for a week, but nothing like a year. 
Some of my favorite beer Fasting events for are or sour events where you're drinking dozens of sour beers on one day, and it definitely it starts does, to hurt. Does wonders <laughs> to the stomach. Yeah, it's definitely a good test of your stomach. Yeah. But also the flavors, too, and I think it's so funny. In New York especially, I find, like, because we have limited space and our kitchen space isn't that, you know, ample. So a lot of people are using more of the fermented techniques, kimchi, things that don't need to be stored, we don't need a freezer for or refrigeration. Um, do you think there's any, uh, like, what? where do you think we are as a country in terms of those flavors? Because there's, for everybody that loves it, there's always like, oh, my God, what is this? This is sour. You know, it's still that kind of stigma about a sour food or drink right. you know what have you seen well i mean it's interesting how beer always seems to be at the forefront of these things and you know that's that's great i, I think beer is going to change uh or help to change a lot of the you know the uh culinary setbacks in, in, in america uh kind of accidentally like the fact that sour beer has become such a craze and so popular in the craft beer world is actually a great thing just for, you know, our general eating habits and health because, yeah, for a while, you know, people just don't, didn't like sour flavors or thought they didn't like sour flavors. So things that had a tang or tartness to them would be, you know, kind of shunned. Uh, but now that so many, so many beer geeks at least are, are geeking out about sour flavors, hopefully that helps to normalize things like a lot of these fermented foods. And, you know, it might be an acquired taste, but, you know, more people will, will learn what, to. What about in your gut? Like, you know, Will, you just, you're in Belgium visiting some sour breweries. I mean, th there are some truths to, to food and beer pairings. You know, certain beers complement. Do you think that certain sour beers help you digest, like, a fatty food better or help balance out a spicy food? I would think there's, uh, you know, some likelihood that's true. Again, I don't, you know, I tried to do a little bit of research in this and, the the results were you know, inconclusive, I guess you could say, um, because it's so complicated. It seems like that would probably be likely, um, but it's you know it's it's something that uh, I'll I'll leave to people who are t more scientifically minded than me because feels uh, that way at least yeah. <laughs> helps me well, digest this, cheese. Well, this guy's the fermented man. It's like the you know it's like the marathon man, the bionic. <laughs> <laughs> He's transformed himself, and through that, I'm sure you you feel like you became a better brewer and. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you become more comfortable with uh, certainly wild fermentation and experiments. And uh, one, you know, one of the uh, one of the experiments that I write about in the book in the beer chapter, um, I I noticed that uh, a lot of starchy vegetable ferments would develop pellicle, which as a home brewer I was very familiar with what a pellicle is. Um, to other fermenters, to yeah, what is it? Oh, right? sorry. Uh, pellicle is uh, a, a, kind of like a colony of yeast and bacteria, forms like a bubbly uh, moon landscape surface over the top of the beer. I mean, it looks like this crazy sheen of these weird uh, white uh, bubbles and veins, and it's. It's it's quite hard to describe, but I highly recommend for anyone that doesn't know what a, a, a pellicle is that's listening to just Google, you know, Google image search uh, pellicle. And Figure out how to spell it and then Google it. P-E-L-L-I-C-L-E. -L -L -E. Uh, yeah, there you go. Cool. So it, it's it's well worth seeing what these things look like. Um, and they would appear on these starchy vegetable ferments that I did, like uh, um, uh, potatoes um, and, and uh, squash and pumpkin. Um, which have a lot of these more complex sugars for this complex colony. I mean, it's similar, I guess, in concept to like a SCOBY, a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast that you'd find on kombucha or vinegar. Uh, very different in appearance, but kind of the same concept where these yeast and bacteria form an actual physical membrane uh, on the surface. And then quickly, what are we drinking? 
Uh, that is uh, so you're also the brewer at Ken Falls. Yes, all over the place. We this love Ken author Falls. Of, how long have you been the brewer at Ken Falls? Uh, yeah, I keep myself quite busy. Um, Ken Falls opened uh, last year, so uh, we brewed the first batch in February of 2015. Uh, so it's been about a year and a half. Um, yeah. what, what are we drinking right now? So that is uh, Florida Lamore. Uh, it is a wild ale, uh, sour beer we brewed with uh, Burial from Asheville, North Carolina. They came up and brewed this with us back in, uh, back in April. Um, so it's a uh, mixed culture wild ale with a little bit of tartness, a little bit of funk to it. And we kind of uh, essentially dry hopped it with uh, flowers. So it's got black locusts, uh, elderflower, and uh, wild rose that uh, were foraged foraged from uh, North Carolina. That's great, man. Cheers to you guys. We'll take a short break. Back in a few minutes on Beer Saracens Radio. All right. Woo! In 1996, El Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, big shout out to Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and lagers. And I know in New York they sell Kent Falls. We're lucky to have uh, Derek Dellinger, the brewer, here today. Derek, um, we're tasting your one of your wild beers, Flor de la Mar. You made with Burial. Burial is very cool. They've been coming up a lot. They're on the show two weeks ago. We talked about beer trademarks, and one of the owners is nice. an attorney. So uh, we know them pretty well. I uh, just want to say um, I love your beers, and I know that they're being handled like you're a very specialty brand out of the gate. I remember last September I was told about you guys, and we, we had you, and everyone loves it. I know, Anne, you, you, you carry them a lot, too, Oh, yeah, don't you? both places. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, it's exciting because, you know, there's a story behind it. You can explain to someone, like, why you know these are foraged, like what foraged even means. I mean, I think people, customers especially, are getting way more interested in not just the beer but the backstory and when you can talk about this is grown on the farm this was foraged on the farm it's not too far away so you you guys actually have a there's a farm as part of the brewery yeah uh it's yeah it's very interesting setup it's actually a three-part business we have a um, a functional farm um that the brewery staff does not run so that we're we're located on a farm we have a farmer who uh runs the farm uh, the brewery is situated there, but we operate as an independent business. And then we also have a distillery in, in Porchester, New York. So um, the, the overall arching idea is called the food cycle um, and all these kind of you know businesses that feed back into each other, which is, I think, really cool. What ingredients from the farm do you use in your beers? 
So we have an acre and a half of hops. Uh, we do a hop harvest festival uh, every September. Uh, well, this will be the, the second annual one, but still um, going to be doing a hop harvest festival every uh, every harvest season and making a kind of wet hopped mixed culture uh, farmhouse sale, a little different from a lot of the IPAs and pale ales and typical hoppy things that people often use uh, wet hops for. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, it's a small farm. The farm actually mostly focuses on livestock. So, uh, other than hops, we're growing herbs and spices and, and other things we'll be able to use, uh, you know, uh, in, in small ways in the beer, but it's mainly, uh, more of a synergistic thing where, you know, we, we can take the spent grain from the brewing process and feed it to the animals. And there's an apple orchard that will, uh, mainly be, the fruit will mainly be going down to the distillery to make their apple brandy. So it's kind of like this, again, a cycle of feeding each business, kind of feeding into the other one. But are you cultivating your own yeast and bacteria and things like that from, yes. from the farm? Okay, yes. that's, that's so, a big... Right, right, yeah. So, so I guess that's, yeah, slightly slightly different approach to, uh, to agriculture where, yeah, I'm cultivating yeast and bacteria that... Uh, that are just harvested right off the farm. I mean, with one beer uh, we'll be releasing later this summer, um, I kind of just basically threw a bunch of things in a jar from the farm and, and cultured, uh, you know, whatever came off of them and, and threw that in a barrel. Um, I did the, uh, as I was explaining before, with the, the squash where they developed pellicle. Um, I took squash from the farm, uh, began lacto-fermenting them like you would if you were just making a, a typical veggie ferment. Uh, but instead of, you know, trying to produce a pickle to eat, I wanted to, to steal that pellicle, um, that, that colony of yeast and bacteria, and I wanted to transplant that into a beer, essentially. That's great. Uh, Will, Will Stevens here is the co-founder of BeerManus.com. Will, I mean, you know, you guys have Beer Manus listed, you know, all these different breweries. Hey, have, have you been to Kent Falls? Do you get to visit a lot of breweries? And uh, is Kent Falls coming up as one of the more, you know, desired beers it's definitely a very popular one it's definitely a personal favorite of mine huge fan of the beers they make Uh, thanks for sharing this one um yeah it's it's exciting to see um sour beer become so popular in general we've definitely noticed that and um, it's fun to see in the data it's fun to see a style that i'm personally really interested in become very popular um definitely personally curious how you got started making sour beer i've been kind of on the fence about trying it and like a little bit scared about the like yeah. having less control over the process. I, I mean, I hear that all the time. And honestly, I think uh, that, that that fear and hesitation is almost the hardest element of, of making sour beer is, you know, so many brewers, professional included, are, are you know, just afraid to kind of jump into it. And it certainly does have its has its risk uh, risks. Um, Britannomyces is I don't think is kind of formidable to sanitize as people make it out to be. It's a yeast that can be killed just like any other yeast. It's really not uh, that big of a deal. Uh, but the bacteria, you know, certainly are a concern. I mean, I think you just you go for it. If you're a home brewer, you 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 know set aside some separate equipment. It's mainly like the soft stuff, the the non stainless stuff that is harder to sanitize that you want to be careful with. So, uh, I mean, I just started out. I got a separate um, auto siphon and, and hose and uh, bottling bucket and, you know, all that kind of like plastic or uh, plastic stuff that could scratch and harbor bacteria. And I, I, maybe I just got lucky, but I never really had any issues. And uh, I just kind of approached it like... I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a writer by background, so I kind of just bounce between projects and just dive into things. And, and I don't know. That's just my mindset, I guess. But I just kind of went for it without 
really dwelling on it too hard. And, and I think just doing that, the act of going through a few batches, kind of gets you past your concern and teaches you that it's a successful thing. And we're so, it, you know, it's so such a new thing that, even, you know, five years ago when I started homebrewing, there was almost no information really or hardly any information about doing this. So it was just like, well, I might as well be yeah. one of those guys trying it, I guess. So when you first got into it, was it kind of fermented foods first or? Uh, beer first. Um, I actually started brewing because of uh, bitter and esters uh, down in uh, Crown Heights. Um, before. Hi, John. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to bitter and esters. Yeah, I went to, uh, to a homebrewing demo they did uh, like on Atlantic Avenue somewhere uh, before they were even open. Um, so I was talking to John and, and like, arranging to get my first homebrewing kit actually before Bitter and Esters opened and I, I went to visit them and buy my first kit when they were like still finishing that space so they were they were awesome they were really helpful and they kind of gave me the push that I needed um, so I, I, I homebrewed for a year or two and then I started making like kombucha and, and sauerkraut and fermented beets uh, mainly beer and kombucha like mainly the the kind of beverage ferments and that that whole spark of learning about like you know getting into sour beer, learning about lactobacillus, and realizing how universal it was was sort of what pushed me to like. I mean, it, it definitely in, enhanced and pushed my sour beer brewing, and it kind of inspired me to get into all other things too. What's the next beer? Did someone bring another beer? Yeah, Will made a um, beer for us. Yeah, speaking right? of bitters and esters, I actually go there regularly to nice. homebrew and brought awesome. homebrew where I bought my ingredients there. <laughs> All right. What are we doing? What's the style? You, you, you popped up for us, Will. And then, Derek, so at Jimmy's number 43 today, I tapped your dry hopped Goza. Oh, awesome. Um, tell us about that beer. Uh, so that's a beer called Alternate World. Um, it is a dry hop Goza. Goza's uh, traditionally German-style uh, wheat beer brewed with salt and uh, coriander. Um, so... That one's a sort of a contemporary take on it where I really like the citrusy uh, characteristics from dry hop, like, uh, you know, uh, American dry hops over that kind of tart, slightly briny foundation. I think it makes for a really refreshing beer, kind of like a sour Gatorade almost. <laughs> I, I like Gozes a lot, and uh, they're different than Berliner Weisses, and, and they shouldn't be as, as like assertive or citrusy. I think you did a nice job with it. Thank I think you. it's good that we're starting to see more, again, more sour drinkers creates more easier and more affordable ways to get sour beer. And it's so nice to see this like explosion of Goza where people can go and get a six pack or, you know, have a pint of something really refreshing and sour without. Yeah. Remember last December we sat with the Grossman's from Sierra Nevada yeah. and they had just come out with their Goza too. Yeah. I'm doing a beer dinner tomorrow night and that's our first course. It's uh, yeah, the, the ultra race, we're killing it with that. It's Sierra so Nevada. good. It's, yeah. it's yeah. incredible how fast the, the craft beer world moves. And I think it's, it just moves faster and faster where you know, years ago I, I would, uh, you know, hunt around New York city to find any Goza at all. I, I remember searching for them like four or five years ago or whatever, uh, when I wanted to brew one. And I, you know, there's like one or two German examples you could find in like the depths of, of the best bottle shops. And it was so hard to find. And now, you know, you can buy you know, a dozen different Yours is up there. Camps. You know, Westbrook Goza and yeah. you know, Leipzig. And, but, you know, it's funny. We've been sitting here. It's, it's middle of summer. It's July. We've been tasting, you know, lighter dry hop beers and all of a sudden will opened up his his growler and says dark beer came out yes, what is and i this? was like i haven't seen a dark beer in weeks yeah so i'm somewhat ashamed to say this is not a sour beer um, i'm excited fine. to make the leap to try it gotta um, have variety i'm going to be soon but definitely after this conversation but this i would describe as maybe a cascade dark um with 
the one exception to the traditional recipe being that it has um, New Zealand hops in it instead oh, cool. of just sort of Cascade. So there should be some Machuica in the dry hop. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a surprisingly light for the color of beer. It's nice. The nose is soft. Yeah. I haven't had a, what, you know, whatever you want to call it, a black IPA, Cascadian dark ale, or probably someone's come up with some other term at this point. <laughs> uh, one of the styles that, like, as I was just saying, like certain things just blow up. Like I already see Pilsners just, everyone's like, oh, we got to do a Pilsner now. Stone's got to do a Pilsner. And, you know, everyone's all of a sudden it's latching the on. the boomerang new, coming back. Yeah, whatever the, the hot original. style is, where this one kind of looked like it might do that for a little bit and then just nosedived yeah, and really no, no one makes them anymore. <laughs> but this is quite nice. This is good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, really, Bitter and Ezra's a great place. I mean, there's not that many homebrew shops left in New York, are there? It's, I think yeah, that's it's the only sad. one left. Yeah. Well, there's some places, you know, Brooklyn Kitchen. I mean, there's some places that sell homebrew equipment. Um, but I think he really is just such a – they're such good people, and they really understand the culture of it and the community of it, and I think it's all-encompassing. So many people out there start there. Great place. And what's it like in Connecticut in terms of home brewing and, and the, the brewing laws? We know that New York has really come a long way. You can home brew, you can farm brew, you can self-distribute. Right. Uh, not so much in, in Connecticut. I mean, there's no farm brewery law. Uh, it's certainly exploding as it is in um, as it is in New York, and New York is doing amazing things to, to further the brewing scene here, as you know, as evidenced by the fact that there's like tenfold more breweries now than there were just a couple of years ago. Uh, it's it's a much slower explosion in Connecticut. We were the first farm brewery in the state. Um, there's a few others opening or in the process of opening, I think, right now. Um, but there's no statewide law or anything. The town that we're in had to essentially draft a, a, a kind of local law specifically for us. Um, so, you know, it, it has some, some room to grow. Um, and it's, you know, it's a smaller state. There's, uh, you know, a bit f- fewer breweries there than New York, certainly. Um, and the local area we're in, I mean, to be honest, I don't know that there is much of a homebrew scene. It's a very rural area. There's, there's not much around. So the furthest homebrew shop is, uh, probably 45 minutes away. Um, but, uh, really what's the reception been like on your beer? Sorry. Just like in Connecticut. Uh, I so mean, it's tough in New York City, but like it's it's always weird to think about that. I mean, I think people really like it. You know, we uh, we we seem to be doing uh, doing pretty well and pretty popular. Um, I'm I'm usually stuck in the brewery and I'm not the one driving out to accounts. But the the few occasions that I do get out on delivery days, we self distribute in Connecticut, so you know we're, our our van's kind of always making the rounds and and the, um, those guys are getting the, the feedback and, and getting to shake the hands and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the Connecticut beer scene is definitely, like, it's full of very enthusiastic people, and it's growing very rapidly, um, and people seem really excited for what, what's happening. In Derek, who else? I mean, I know that just in the last year or two, uh, there's you guys, Ken Falls. We've gotten Black Hog a lot yeah. in the city. Yeah, yeah. Who, who else can you really recommend? Sure, yeah. I mean, Black Hog and OEC is doing really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure most people probably are familiar with them. I mean, they've definitely earned a, a reputation quickly, deservedly so, uh, for doing a lot of... I, they're more focused uh, exclusively on, like, sours and wild ales and blended barrel-aged beers. Um as their focal point, they're doing really cool things. Steady Habit, uh, who uh, we just packaged a collaboration with uh, a fruited IPA called Sparkle Boots. Um, 
they're they're doing really great things some excellent ipas um so i mean there's there's definitely like at this point something for every everyone there's uh another farmhouse brewery called uh fox farm that's opening that uh sounds really promising um i mean it it's definitely getting there a lot of these breweries are still kind of like in the process of of opening so uh, it'll be very interesting to see in like another year's time when this whole wave is kind of solidified into breweries that are, that have beer out there. Well, how do you guys at Beer Menus? How do you find out about new breweries? I mean, do people just submit them, or do you actually have somebody out there who's like finding them for you guys? Yeah, it's a combination. Um, we have a product for breweries where they can add their own information and manage it. Uh, we did actually launch a new product recently. It's uh, a beer finder for breweries, and um, we're actually talking with you guys about it. But um, basically, we, um, especially for the small self-distributed breweries, we have a tool where um, often if it's a brewery that's small and self-distributed, most of their accounts use beer menus and update all the time. So we use beer menus data to tell you what beers are where on the brewery website. Um, so with that tool, we have a lot of breweries um, joining themselves. That's cool, man. You guys do a lot of great stuff. We're off to a great start. Big shout-out. Uh, the next three Wednesdays, I'll be at WNYC's uh, The Green Space for Craft Beer Jam. You can check it out at thegreenspace.org. And was on a bunch of those with us and uh, some, some new people. We've got New Jersey versus New York, some of the emerging uh, new breweries out of New Jersey that you don't get to see in New York. So check it out at thegreenspace.org. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. You can become a member. It's a lot of benefits and a lot of special activities coming up. But right now we're having our typical in-studio conversation. What are we going to drink next? Because <laughs> we had, tell us again, the first beer you had, had from Kent Falls. So that was uh, Florida Lamar, uh, a wild ale that we did with uh, Burial in Asheville. Um, brewed with flowers, which I had actually never done before, and I'm not sure I've had another beer with flowers oh de la mort like flower of the dead i thought yeah. it was de la mort like flower of love i i'm not good at friend i, <laughs> I didn't i didn't come up with that yeah, right. yeah. can i ask you a question wait wait, wait, and then wait, wait and, oh, what, yeah. and what did you we decide from you will um so i brought one of my homebrewed beers using ingredients from uh bitters and esters but it's a cascade dark that is currently only on tap at the beer menu's office and we're out of beer <laughs> any ideas uh. for a name for will's beer tweet us <laughs> let's get a good name for this well, maybe get a beer. free beer you know, tweet at beer underscore if they even tweet do people still tweet at beer underscore session. Or, uh, we, uh, we actually maintain a page for our office where we list what beers are currently in our fridge and on tap in our kegerator. And we invite people to come by anytime. So if people have names, they can uh, but come would by. Would you give us a free it. Beer Manus t shirt? We'll <laughs> give it out. Sure. Somebody go. tweet in, we'll get you a free Beer Manus t shirt. We'll figure t-shirt. out somehow to get it to <laughs> yeah. you. I don't know. Um, let me ask you a question. So obviously, you know, 
food, and I'm sorry, bread and cheese and certain fermented things we're all familiar with, but what's some of the wacky stuff? Like, what did you go out and say, I have no idea this was a fermented food. Did you try anything? I think I read something about Iceland. Yes, yeah. Um, so, I mean, fermentation can, can run the whole spectrum. I mean, yeah, you can have uh, very normal things, and, you know, uh, I, I certainly didn't want to, like, push the, the weirdest of the weird uh, entirely with this book because a lot of what I wanted to do was, was normalize, you know, fermentation for, uh, for people who have no experience with it. So you can ferment, you know, vegetables, uh, any kind of vegetable, and some of them turn out stranger than others. Some of them turn out very good. My experience, I mean, I have kind of a bit of a, a texture thing where certain textures just kind of kind of bother me in, in, in food. So, uh, you know, I found certain things where you just expected to have a, a typical texture. Uh, How like, about like your three favorite, like your favorite breakfast, favorite lunch, favorite dinner? Because I'll tell you about we uh, Jensen Cummings, yeah, who does awesome. brewed food. Uh, he was here in New York, did a dinner with us. So I got a sense of what, what he was talking about. But your favorite breakfast? Lunch and dinner that you had in that time, uh, I and would it do, could be exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of lunches and a lot of dinners were were the same. Um, favorite breakfast? I mean, I had to get pretty creative there. I would try things like sourdough kimchi pancakes and like trying to use my sourdough culture in unique ways and trying to integrate, you know, other ferments that I was doing into into breakfasts and trying to. Some of the weirder, but still on the normal side, like experimental in that you just don't encounter them very often, but kind of normal in, in that they're not far off from what people normally eat. I would try and do uh, kind of fermented smoothies. So I would take uh, like water kefir is, is a type of ferment you can ferment uh, with these little like pods of bacteria and yeast um, and kind of ferment like coconut water or, or just water with sugar in it. Uh, and you can ferment fruit in, in that or in uh, yogurt or, you know, anything that's, that's cultured really. And trying to get, uh, I, I would try and get like a smoothie going with like, oat, like fermented oats, fermented oatmeal and coconut water and yogurt and fruit and blend so it all together. And like just raw milk. Uh, I mean, you can also, let, yeah, you can let raw milk clabber and start to ferment. Um, but yeah, and you can ferment uh, any, any, pretty much any milk with um, with uh, regular kefir grains, uh, which are you know, that's a traditional, uh, very traditional drink that's been what around about for butter. Butter, yeah, I could do butter. I probably got a lot of calories from butter. Um, you can get cultured butter now at, at most like kind of uh, fancy grocery stores. So. Yeah, culture so butter your, your sourdough is, kimchi pancake what did you put on top of it uh, well usually cultured butter i guess or uh, you know I'm, I'm definitely a fan of condiments and a lot of condiments are fermented so uh, could have put on some kind of like korean spicy you know red pepper fermented sauce or uh, different things like that tabasco sauce is interesting and it's like one of the few kind of gro available grocery store uh hot sauces condiments that's very uh it, it hasn't changed its process since it's been made it's fermented for like a lot, two a years lot of those foods sound, sound familiar to me i mean the thing you said about bread like giving it lo longer time a real sourdough process i mean i like those kind of breads and i, I i'm not a fan of just like crappy cheap fast breads yeah, is there any, did you find any place, so there's this place in, in Rome called Beer and Food. It's one of the greatest, like, you know, beer restaurants in Rome, and they have the pizza that they do is the long fermented sourdough um, pizza crust, hmm. and it's fantastic. But I was trying to find a place like that in New York, and I haven't found, did you find any restaurants or any markets or anything that does specifically this kind of techniques? Uh, 
to be honest, I mean, I, there, there are definitely places in New York making, uh, in New York City making really good bread now. Having been out of the city for a few years, I really, I can't think of any. Or in the Hudson the Valley. I just head. meant, did you find a place that was really doing it right or a good market or restaurant? <laughs> uh, for bread, it's, it's tough. Uh, found some places in Vermont. Uh, there's a, like a really good bread scene in Vermont. Um, I, I, I interview in here actually a bakery up in Vermont that I think is kind of the, my like platonic ideal of, of what a bakery should be, where they're milling their own grain and doing these long uh, you know, sourdough fermentations for basically every bread uh, and just doing everything right. Uh, they're called Elmore Mountain Bread. Um, and for some reason, Vermont just seems to be really obsessive about the, the quality of its food. So there's there's a lot up there, and and there Elmore Mountains advocating kind of like the importance of the milling process in in the you know the steps of, of making bread, and that seems to be spreading within the the bread world. That uh, that aspect of, of bread creation is kind of gaining traction, and people realizing how important that is to the process. Sounds like you could put together a pretty good menu. <laughs> yeah, Which, absolutely. If you could, maybe also if you're cooking at home too, right? That's yeah. a lot of it goes back to home cooks and what you can. Do yeah. yourself. You can make entirely fermented pizza, uh, which you know, fortunately, was something I could eat during my year because the crust is bread, so you can do that. Uh, cheese, mozzarella is not always fermented, but cheese obviously you can can do because most cheese is fermented. And then the missing component is the tomato sauce. So it, I would ferment um, cherry tomatoes or, or even make tomato sauce and ferment that and lived off a lot of pepperoni pizza that year too. So that was that was a popular uh, dinner to. to get back to your earlier question i certainly had a lot of that but you didn't have to buy and make everything you could buy things too. yeah i could buy you things buy i things. mean it would have been inter- it would have been another almost book entirely to try and do it making everything myself it would have been a full-time job maybe two full-time jobs to make everything myself and i just didn't have one thing so that. both you know uh, so will and, and Anne, you guys are like high level cicerones you know in that training there's there's some talk of, of beer and food and beer and food pairings but uh, is there any is there any talk about fermented foods? Yeah, um, beer and food pairing is a big part of the Cicerone program, and um, there it's also one of the most subjective parts of it. So um, there's a little bit of interpretation involved, but definitely a lot of people say that um, food that's fermented in the same way that beer is made often pairs better together than things that aren't made the same way. Did you have that experience at all? Um, I mean, I, I certainly don't have uh, the knowledge of, of food and beer pairings that that you do. I mean, oh, I'm curious actually. Like, so do they do they uh, elaborate on what elements of, of the food? Is it the sourness? Like, is it the, the instead of contrasting flavors, they're complementary flavors? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think it's largely beer and cheese that people talk about. Okay, um, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, well, it could also be fermentation flavors. <clears throat> Excuse right. me. Um, you know, the fruitiness, the spiciness. You know, the phenols and the esters that happen during fermentation are a lot of times words that we would use to describe food mm-hmm. and so there's an automatic connection you know with with fermented flavor also adding elements of savoriness and umami and you know that aspect of food and beer work really well together i think it's just i just did a sour class i just came from you know staff training and one of the things i did was all sours and we brought in different f- cheeses and had that together and see like you know the earthiness and the funk from the yeast and the bacteria and this and that. and it really does make make for a really good partner yeah and good matches yeah, you know? I mean, cheese is so complex, and I mean, it's probably the thing that's uh, most similar to beer in a lot of ways in the the complexity and, and just different flavors it can express. That 
it can run this whole gamut. Uh, so, Derek, so another beer I'll have tonight at Jimmy's number 43 is your Anachronism. Okay. What, what's that beer? So uh, that's kind of modeled on a, a style called Grotzer. Um, it's uh, it's uh, brewed with uh, oak-smoked wheat. Uh, so traditionally it would be 100% oak-smoked wheat. Um, we do a slightly smaller percentage just to, to make it a little easier for us to brew because uh, wheat um, doesn't have hulls, so it'll tend to kind of form a very gummy mash. Um, but it's it's brewed with this very, very cool grain. Um, it, it's really not like any other smoke malt, smoke malt that I've brewed with. Uh, much subtler, cleaner uh, smoke flavor. So you get this really cool smoked beer, and it's a light beer. It's you know not, not the typical like kind of smart, smoked uh, dark ale. Um, it's, it's a light farmhousey, uh, you know, structured beer. So it's very refreshing and earthy and the the smokiness kind of comes out as this kind of rustic, uh, you know, rustic earthy flavor, uh, as opposed to like the barbecue bacon, you know, smoke flavor that you get sometimes. And Derek, so with with all these interesting styles and traditional styles and based on the form, do you guys make an IPA too? Oh, we do. Yeah. Um, we, we have, uh, three 30 barrel tanks that we make a lot of the bigger, uh, production volume stuff in, but we we have a few smaller tanks uh, as we kind of collect our you know collect our our fancy hops to to get good contracts and so forth. Uh, so we turn out smaller volumes of our clean IPAs, but we definitely are releasing a, a new one every few weeks and hope to grow that in the future as we have more hops available. Well, really, thank you that you came on. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you tonight. But well, a quick thing. So we're talking about Cicerone tonight. We invited a number of Cicerones to uh, our event after the show. And uh, what's the new project you started on BeerManus.com? Yeah, so on my end, I took the exam last December, and once I passed it, reached out to the Cicerone program. I was really excited about it all. I thought it was very um, valuable for everyone to go through, and we have since um, started doing monthly webinars where we invite anyone who wants to to come out, and we have members of the Cicerone team um, go through a different topic each month, and... Um, on beer menus on the blog, you can find out how to sign up and subscribe, but we have one uh, next Tuesday with Ray Daniels, the um, director of the program, talking about draft service. And um, yeah, it's really exciting. It's a program where it's very daunting to get into it. It can feel like a lot to prepare for the exams, and we've found that just sort of going face-to-face with the team behind the program is very valuable to help people so maybe my staff, if they're not willing to sit down and go through the Cicerone program, they could start by checking out your webinars. Yep. Every show we record, so your team can listen to it on their own time if they want to. Um, yeah. Hopefully it helps people get prepared. That's great. Anything else you guys want to add before we close out? Well, I guess look whoever's listening, look up the book because there's something about decaying shark meat or something, a cool story that we yeah, don't have time I for now. Didn't but get to that. Yeah. yeah, that's okay, but it looks like something really cool, so I'm excited to check out this book. So yeah. it's, Tell us again, it's Derek Dallinger, yep. The Fermented Man. The Fermented Man. Uh, it comes out next week, actually, so you'll be able to, I mean, you can order it right now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It'll be in bookstores next week, um, and you can follow me online. I'm on Twitter, uh, bear-flavored, bear-like-the-animal. Uh, yeah. Nice. Right and we know Will's got doing Cicerone webinars and a lot of cool stuff at Beer Menus. Again, someone tweet us about something, you'll get a free Beer Menus t-shirt. Twitter's been replaced by <laughs> Pokemon Go now. Pokemon Go. <laughs> oh, my like God. That. Enough with the Pokemon. <laughs> and it's it's July Good Beer Month in New York City in the areas, and it's, it's, it's informal. It's like an open source thing that's been going for years. But check it out, com. And next week we're going to announce some of the new Good Beer Seal Bar winners. And... Uh, 
you know, this is a great time to, to, to tune in to Heritage Radio Network, right? Yeah. Having some so. fun. And next week we're airing our special uh, that we recorded yes. at Treadwell Park with That's right. Tommy Arthur and uh, Olivier, Olivier from uh, Brasserie DuPont. That was that a fun was show. really cool. What I mean, that guy's a genius. They're that both, was a great one. That was one of our first kind of like add another bar with a full kind of recording setup. And David, the engineer, was there. And uh, that's next Tuesday, July nineteenth. All right, at five o'clock on uh, Heritage Radio Network. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Derek, Will, and Ann for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers Maggie Seiden and Justin Kennedy, and our engineer David Tadashur. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, yeah, woo woo. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.